Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Gina Hinnon at Adelsheim Winery. It's uh, January 28th, 2020. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gina. We appreciate this. Uh, We'll start with the most important question. Uh, Why wine? Um, You know, I get asked that all the time. (laughs) I'm still not sure what the real answer is. Um, I have a degree in chemistry, and I started off um, in engineering, actually, and then after several years working in that industry, decided I really wanted to do something different. Um, Wine seemed like a good idea at the time, (laughs) so I started learning more about it, and then left school, went back to college for winemaking, and kind of talked my way into a harvest internship, and then just kept going from there. (laughs) What was it about wine that appealed to you at the time? Why did it seem like a good idea? I thought about going to culinary school, but the idea of making the same thing every day, you know, potentially for several days in a row or weeks or months was not appealing. And one of the things I liked about wine is how cyclical Mm -hmm. and dynamic it is. So you might be doing the same thing in January every year, but it's a different January every year. (laughs) And so it kind of appeals to that sense of balance and flow, but also something new and interesting. Tell me about going back to school for wine, and what what what, uh, what was the experience like? What did you not know that you needed to know? What what surprised you about being about winemaking? Um, I did not realize I had to speak in public as often as I do. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, um, that was not part of what I thought winemaking was. <laughs> so, you know. It's, I, I got into this because I liked making wine. I liked the process of making wine. I liked tasting and smelling and um, being outside in the vineyard. All of those things are really interesting to me. The sales side of it isn't the reason why I'm in it, but obviously that's a component. And then likewise, I get asked to do a lot of speaking engagements, which not my favorite thing, <laughs> but um, you know it's important. And it's important to share whatever knowledge you've accumulated with other people. When you were coming back into wine, did you have a, were you a consumer at that point? Did you have a, an appreciation for wine as a drinker at that point? Sort of. When I was in college, that was my first introduction to wine. So a housemate would bring home bottles of Conchi Toro, like the big magnums. <laughs> and that was my first introduction. I remember him bringing home a Gewurztraminer and trying to pronounce it and thinking it was delicious. And it sort of, you know, I got engaged really from that point. My thesis advisor gave me a really nice Blanc de Blanc when I graduated. And so it sort of stepped up in quality <laughs> from that point, especially as I started working and making money. So you're in, you're in school for winemaking. Uh, was, it, was it winemaking to start with? Was that, was that the part of the industry you wanted to be in was production or did you yeah. have to kind of find that? Okay. No, that was what I intended to do. So I got a degree in chemistry, mm-hmm. worked in industry, came back, and then definitely knew winemaking was the, the role in the industry for me. So tell me, tell me about the education process then. Tell me about being in school for winemaking and, and uh, what you did there and getting into the industry for the first time. So it's the program in Salem called Chemeketa. Mm-hmm. So it's very locally influenced. Um, it's very hands-on, very practical. I thought about going to Davis as a pretty traditional route, but already having a bachelor's degree. I didn't want to do a second one or really get a master's degree in winemaking. I wanted it to be you know, more hands-on, and mm-hmm. so that program 
was really appealing because I wanted to stay in Oregon as well. So mm -hmm. it kind of kind of all worked together. So what was your first stop in the industry then once you were, once you were getting your education? Uh, I had an internship at Erath. Mm -hmm. It was right after Dick had sold, so it was 2006. And I worked there for that harvest and stayed a little bit afterwards. And then found a job here. Tell me about harvest. What was the first harvest like? It was interesting. It was really warm, which at the time I didn't know one way or the other. Um, but the fruit was super clean. I was mostly on the sorting table for the beginning of harvest and making additions and helping to manage the fermentations a little bit. So it was all new, which was really exciting for me. I didn't know what to expect. Um, but it was, it was just so fun. It was so hands-on. I was outside most of the day. Um, it was, you know, it was just new information almost every day. So I decided at that point I had made the right choice. <laughs> was there a specific part of the process that appealed to you? You mentioned all the different things you're working on, the sorting and the fermentation. And was there a certain part of the process that really kind of pulled you in as, as winemaking is the thing I want to do? Not really. I remember wanting to um, be able to dig out tanks. <laughs> because it looked like more fun than standing on a sorting table pulling off leaves. Um, I only got to do that once or twice, but they were gigantic tanks, so it took me most of a day to do one of them. So you found a job at Adelsheim. What, yep. what, was, what was your initial role here? I was a seller hand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I started in March of 2007, and then at the end of that 2007 harvest, they created the job of seller master for me, so I moved into that role. Stayed there for several years, and then eventually assistant winemaker, associate winemaker, and then winemaker. So just kind of straight path. Kept moving up. <laughs> Took a while, but yeah, relatively straight path. Uh, tell me about Adelsheim and uh, working here. What was uh, you went from? You were at Erath, you went to Adelsheim, so you were working for some of the original old, mm -hmm. old Oregon wine houses. Tell me about yeah. the, uh, what it was like when you got here. What, what did you have to still learn? What, what, what was unique about Adelsheim? I don't know how to answer that. So much. I mean, there's so much. I'm still learning things, right? I mean, I've been here for this is my 13th vintage. Mm -hmm. And there's always, again, there's something new. It's not just the vintage is different, but there's more learning to build on the core of what you already have. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just, that's one of the things I really like about winemaking is you're never done. Mm -hmm. You're never finished. You're never there. You never make the perfect wine, right? So it's always the sort of progression, like the slow, inevitable progression <laughs> towards something better. <laughs> sure. Uh, curious, early in your career, uh, were there notable moments of success or of failure that kind of pushed you on a path? Or were there moments that you, uh, learning moments, I guess, early on that, that either felt like you belonged or felt like I have a long ways to go? Yeah, it's hard to pick out, you know, a couple. Um, I mean, I remember doing something really dumb to a tank and not realizing it until after the fact and it felt awful like oh my god the world is you know falling around behind me um, and only again through I, I remember when I told my boss he's like okay we'll fi figure it out you know it's not that big a deal <laughs> and for me I was like oh no um, so that's one of the things I guess is perspective as you get older the longer you're in a role like this, you know, it's like there are always things that could be worse. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, we tell the interns every year when they come in, like, people have done far worse than you're ever going to do. <laughs> be safe. Tell us when you make mistakes. We'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. I like that. That's really good. Uh, at what point, 
along the path did you feel like you were ready to be a winemaker, to actually have that part of that title? Did you feel pretty quickly or did it take a little while? No, it took a while, mm -hmm. for sure. I mean, again, like there's, there's just, there's so much. Because you start in the cellar, you start learning the, the practical side of how to make wine and blend it and filter it and rack it, all of those things. And then eventually you learn more about the finesse of all of those different, you know, actions. And then there's the vineyard and how do you figure out how much to thin in what kind of a year are you going to have, do you think? You know, and it's, I don't know, it's just like, again, it's like this agglomeration of information and I think it also kind of helps to have a good long-term memory because, <laughs> you know, you might be referencing something that happened with that one particular block 10 years ago, mm -hmm. um, you know, or trying to see, well, what worked then that might work now or what didn't work five years ago that might work now. Mm -hmm. So it's it's just sort of a like you're a pyramid of knowledge and you're you know you never really reach the top of it. When we talked to Kelly, she was talking about the the relationship between vineyard and, and winery and, mm -hmm. and the relationship between your two roles. How does that develop? And at what point do you feel comfortable in that kind of relationship? Uh, asking the vineyard for what you need, telling the vineyard what you need, taking their feedback. I think it depends very much on the personality of the people involved. <laughs> Kelly and I work great together, which is important. That's not always the case, obviously. Um, but fortunately for us, I mean, I think we both have very collaborative work. Um, like we, we prefer a collaborative work environment. So I would rather bounce ideas off of her. Hey, what do you think about this? Should we try this? Have you seen this before? And she's also the same, you know, she wants to know like, what do you guys, what is your intent with this block? How has it performed? What was the wine like when we did X, Y, and Z in the vineyard? So we do a lot of experiments together. So she'll, we'll set up an experiment during the growing season. She'll bring it into the winery coated so we don't know which is which. We'll taste it throughout the year and then we'll have a big reveal at the end to figure out you know, what we like and don't like and what we want to try for the next year. So again, those kinds of experiments, there's a lot of work involved mm -hmm. for her team and for ours, but you know, that doesn't work unless all the teams are working together and sort of helping each other succeed. Have you had any of those experiments that turned into major kind of shifts for the, for the way you do things? Um, major shifts? I don't know, yes and no. I mean, I think we've learned something from every experiment, even if it's, um, that didn't work, <laughs> right? That's good information to know about, um, so you don't try to <laughs> do it again. Um, yeah, I mean, like, we've learned a lot, I think, about hot vintages in the last several, because we've had a string of, you know, many other than the last vintage in 19, 14, 15, 16, and to some degree 17, we're all fairly warm, very early vintages. Mm -hmm. And you can get a lot of extraction in wines in Pinot Noir specifically if you're not careful. So we played around a lot with cooling down the fermentations, um, doing more gentle cap management, things like that. And those were all based on experiments that we did. There are some things that we've been doing out in the vineyard as well to see if we could, you know, help the tannins there first be what we want them to be by the time they get into the winery. So those are, you know, kinds of things that we're working on, but there's, I don't know, we're sort of obsessively committed to experimentation, <laughs> much to our own <laughs> detraction sometimes. But, um, you know, it's again, like you, how many vintages do you have in your lifetime where you're really making a lot of decisions? 20, maybe. So you better, you better make them count. You guys are kind of legendary in the industry for your experimentation. So. <laughs> <laughs> for good like I said, for good and bad reasons. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Um, I'm curious, you not only work with your own estate fruit here, but you also bring in fruit mm -hmm. from, from other sources as well. I'm curious, the, the building the relationships with those growers, obviously I know it's a lot of what Kelly does, mm -hmm. but as a winemaker, what are you looking for and, and how are you, how do you communicate with growers what your needs are from, uh, from year to year and vintage to vintage? Uh, well, a lot of it is good communication and having that really solid working relationship. We try to find people who we have, I guess, good chemistry with and who want the same things that we want. Right, because if, if we're getting what we want and they're not getting what they want, then it doesn't work. Um, so we we really try to work hard to find those relationships where we can have a good um, sort of teamwork platform for several years into the future. I mean, there are vineyards that we've been working with, like Winderly. Our vineyard crew planted that block in '99, and we've been getting fruit since then, even through the sale um, from Goldschmidt to Winderly. So, you know, we're looking for those kinds of kinds of situations where we can really commit to a place because we want to learn about it. We want to, you know, find out everything there is to know about Winderly or Zenith or Grand Oak. Mm -hmm. And so those are sites that we've worked with for, you know, 10 years or more in some cases. So how would you describe your winemaking philosophy and perhaps how it's changed from when you started making wine? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's we're really trying, I, I, I hate the word non-interventionist because everything we do is an intervention in some way or another. Grapes don't grow the way that we make them grow, right? Um, but we try to really be true to what they are. So for instance, um, there's a vineyard that we've worked with, I mean, that's one of our first estate site called Quarter Mile. And over the years, we found that whole cluster works really well with the kind of tannins that we get from whole cluster, from um, Quarter Mile. Mm -hmm. So we use whole cluster in that vineyard, but we don't do it at this site, Calkins Lane, because it doesn't quite work. It doesn't jive. The tannins don't work together. They kind of clash. So. We're not putting whole cluster in quarter mile because we want it to be different. We're putting it in because it works with the kind of style of the wine that we get from it. Mm -hmm. So it's more about like enhancing what we get from that site and trying to express the site in the most complete, interesting, elegant way that we can. Obviously, do you, do you feel any added pressure working at a place like Adelsheim and working, yeah. working with, with, that, with that kind of name and that kind of legend behind you? Is there pressure as a winemaker to live up to a certain standard? Honestly, I mean, I think that's true of anywhere you work, not just here. Um, but yeah, I mean, we are not only continuing a legacy, but we're also, I mean, our production team of, you know, five people is responsible for everything that the sales team is going to sell, everything that the marketing department is going to market. So yeah, I mean, I think we all have a big sense of responsibility towards the company um, and the legacy too. I mean, when we're blending up wines, we'll open up older vintages to sort of understand continuity, but it also helps to be in the same place for 14 years <laughs> because a lot of that is just back in my mind. Hey, you know, we used to do this 10 years ago. I wonder if that would work again, or we tried that and it didn't work. What are the conditions now that might allow it to work better? So it's, again, it's just sort of amassing vast amounts of information. Tell me about the 2019 vintage. You mentioned it being different. Uh, what's, what was it like for you and what is the wine going to be like? The wine is still a baby, so I'm not gonna answer that question. I really like where the wines are at. I think they've got a really interesting, incredible future. One of the big highlights, I think, of 2019, it was a, a more challenging vintage than we've had for the past several. Um, we had some pretty major rain events, mm -hmm. and they didn't go away. And it's the last, I mean, we, the last time we had a lot of rain was probably 2013. Mm -hmm. 
So during harvest, I opened up a bunch of the 2013 single vineyards and sort of refreshed my memory. What did we do? Looked at old notes, kind of like as a touchstone, like where were we then? What worked or didn't work back then? What do we want to try for this year? And because of the relationship that we have with the vineyard, so, um, you know, Kelly would call me and she'd say, hey, you know, I think this block is starting to decline or I'm worried about this block. So we'll go out there together, take a look around and figure out a strategy. Maybe we pull more leaves ahead of the rains that we know are coming. Mm -hmm. um, so it'll help it, the fruit dry out a bit faster. Um, so it's, I don't know. I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. But <laughs> as, as a winemaker, do you prefer vintage like that where you have yeah. to? Yeah, okay. it was so much more interesting. <laughs> I mean, in the warm years, those have their own challenges. That's not easy when everything ripens at the same time. Um, this was just a different set of challenges, but it was much more mentally engaging, right? Because there were so many possible outcomes. Mm -hmm. I think the wines are really going to be interesting to taste across the valley because you know, it's going to depend a lot on the decisions of the winemaking team and the vineyard staff mm -hmm. and how well that worked out. So I'm, I'm excited to see other people's. Um, it's, you know, we're still, we're still working through them. They're just sitting in barrel right now, hanging out until later this year. Mm -hmm. So we got some time to figure out what the vintage is going to be like. As you've talked to peers across the industry, are they giving you some more the, the challenging? Are they excited? Are they worried? I think most people are pretty excited that I've talked to because, I mean, it was, again, it was much more intellectually stimulating than the last few vintages have been. Um, so I don't know. I think everyone's kind of looking forward to seeing what they'll, what they'll be like. Uh, obviously, you're, uh, there aren't too many female winemakers in the industry right now, uh, more than there used to be, of course, which mm -hmm. is good. Is, uh, tell me about your, your experience as a female winemaker in, in Oregon. So, <laughs> um, I recently found out some data that um, there are more female winemakers in Oregon than in California or in New Zealand. And I can't remember the exact number, but it's, you know, it's still pretty abysmally low. I think it was around 18%. Um, versus I think maybe the worldwide average is nine. So we're doing a lot better than a lot of places, but that is nowhere near parity. Mm -hmm. um, so then I, it's, it's kind of been a theme for a lot of the industries I worked with. I worked in engineering, not usually considered a women-dominated field. Um, I worked in restaurant kitchens, again, not exactly <laughs> dominated by women, but you know, I didn't, I guess, think about it too much at the time in any of those careers. It was just, the way it was. Um, so I'm happy to see that's changing. A lot of the interns that we get during harvest are women, usually about half and half. So that makes me really hopeful for the future that we'll reach a point in time where there will be a lot more women and it won't be something to even comment on. Mm -hmm. It'll just be normal. Mm -hmm. So you are seeing it change since you've been in the role. You're seeing more, you're seeing more women in getting into the production side. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So I'm hopeful <laughs> that they stick it out. So I'm curious, uh, as uh, you've been in the industry, what are the, what are the most notable changes you've seen in Oregon since you've been part of the Oregon wine industry? What has changed, what, what has changed the most when you started and what does the industry look like now in 2020? It looks a lot more professional. Um, when I first came, it was again from another industry and I could not understand how we don't have meetings without agendas. That's just like, how is that even a thing? Um, that has changed a lot, I feel like. Um, but also, the level of education that people come into the industry is much higher, I think, than it was. I don't think I would get the same job now <laughs> that I did when I was first hired. 
Um, I had one harvest. You know, most people we hire here have multiple. They might be international harvests as well. Usually a degree, which I did have, but you know, it's. I, I, there's just a lot more experience out there, I think, than there was when, when I started. What about as you look ahead for Oregon Wine? What is it going to look like in, let's say, 2030? Um, warm. <laughs> a warming climate, I think, will be our biggest challenge of the future. Um, trying to find the right niches for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in a warming climate, I think, will be challenging. Um, and also probably an exploration of other varieties mm -hmm. because you know that might be you know 40 years down the road, 50 years, but grapes take a long time to get settled. And so those are the kinds of questions we need to be asking now mm -hmm. for 40 years into the future. Uh, at Adelsheim and in your role, what are there things you're doing now to, to mitigate climate change, mm -hmm. to mitigate the changes that are coming? What are you What are you working on? Um, well, I mean, we have solar panels, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Reduction, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of what we can do with the vines and the grapes, we are looking for higher elevation mm -hmm. sources. We just bought a vineyard that's boy maybe 900 feet elevation. A few years ago, that would have been considered crazy. Um, so those, I mean, those are the kind of big scale things. Mm -hmm. The smaller scale, it looks like, again, changing your extraction protocol a little bit. You know, lowering your fermentation temperature can make the fruit seem less ripe, I find. Mm -hmm. So things like that, small little incremental changes as a reaction to that year's warm harvest is kind of where, we're, where we are right now. Mm -hmm. But in terms of looking forward into the future, those are the bigger questions that still need a lot of work and frankly financial resources put behind it um, obviously not just for Adelson but for the industry mm -hmm. we need to really solve this question of what what Pinot looks like here in 2050 what about for yourself as you look ahead what do you what do you see yourself being uh, five ten years down the road I don't know that's a great <laughs> question I don't I need to have a five-year plan <laughs> or a ten-year plan even better um, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't really want to run a winery. <laughs> I, don't, I don't love the business side of it. I don't love the sales side of it. But I also can't imagine, you know, doing harvest when I'm 60. So I don't know. I got. I'll let you know when <laughs> I figure that out. Some sort of director of winemaking for. Uh, yeah, so, maybe so. a desk. <laughs> I kind of have have a desk job now, anyhow. So. <laughs> I'm curious, you mentioned that earlier when we were talking very early on about uh, things you weren't expecting about the job, and mm -hmm. that was so. Tell me about doing those kind of things that are outside of what you really want to do, and this this kind of thing in sales yeah. and marketing. How, how have you dealt with that? How have you kind of grown into that? Well, I mean, you just kind of suck it up and do it. I mean, that's <laughs> that's really what it is, you know, and. You kind of learn on the job. No one's going to tell you this is how you speak about sales, and this is how you, you know, sell a fifty-dollar bottle of wine. You kind of have to figure out and, like, you know, visually see what is interesting to people, and sort of tailor your story to your audience to a large degree. Mm -hmm. If they're people that have a lot of industry experience, that's one story. People that are new to wine, that's a very different story. And so you kind of have to understand where people are coming from and what information they are looking for about the wines. If uh, someone were to come to you, and I'm sure this has happened, and ask for your advice about getting into the Oregon wine industry, what mm -hmm. would your words of wisdom to them be? Okay, that's a great question, because I did the same thing to someone years ago, and he said, 
don't get into the industry, and I didn't listen to him. I'm very stubborn that way, and I'm so glad I didn't, so I would never say so that. <laughs> what I would say is it's going to be a little different than you expect, and it's a lot of fun, and it's probably the best job I could ever imagine, so you should totally do it, um, and just keep at it. Just, you know, keep... You're, it's not going to look the same the way that you might think it will, but... It's a pretty, pretty wonderful industry. And I mean, it's small still. A lot of us know each other well. We hang out in our spare time. So it's very friendly. It's, it's, a, it's a great world to be in. That collegiality, friendliness, kind of close-knit, that, has that changed at all as the industry has grown so rapidly? No, I think not at all. I mean, you look back and I hear stories from David Adelsheim about the early days, and it was the same thing. I mean, there were fewer people, there was a handful of them, but they had to band together to, to make something really incredible, to even figure out how to make wine, to figure out how to fix tools, the equipment. They didn't have someone to call and say, hey, my press is broken. It was like, Dick Ponzi, you're an engineer. Like, how do you fix this, right? They had to work together. And I think that really was the foundational core of this industry as far as that collaborative environment. And they've just somehow helped perpetuate that through the years. And that's still, I think, a real strong ethos of the industry. It's, you know, that's the expectation. Um, Ponzi broke their press bag a few years ago. I'm like, well, we have an extra. Here you go, you know? And that's, it wouldn't, of course we, I mean, of course we would do that. And it's funny to me because I, I've only heard secondhand that's not the way it is in other parts in the winemaking world. And that's just what I've grown up in. That's what I know. So it's, I don't know, it's, it is still very much a part of this industry. It just seems normal. Yeah. It's been what you're part of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Get a little philosophical on you here. What is, <laughs> what is wine's significance in society? In society? Mm-hmm. I mean... Let's be honest, we make a product that is not always super healthy for people, depending on how it's consumed. Um, But in the best of circumstances, it's a way, I think, to get together with friends, um, with people you care about, and to really slow down and enjoy yourselves and, you know, have a glass with dinner and it might enhance what you're eating and you have great conversation and it's just sort of a moment to, like, stop, stop and take a breath and sort of enjoy where you are right now. Any questions? Okay, well, we breeze through that. So, as all the questions that I have, okay. is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? So. Okay, that was really brief, but okay. those were great answers, so I appreciate that. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for your time sure. today, for sharing your stories. Uh, we'll go ahead and uh, let you off the hook. Okay. Thank Sweet. you. That was awesome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.